1: Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today.
2: I want to talk about what John Heyman said about Juan Soto. So before we get into this conversation, let's let you guys hear what John Heyman had to say. This was on a podcast much like this one. John Heyman on Juan Soto Staying Put.
0: You know, every week we've done this, and I keep (laughs) saying, you know, I don't think Soto will be traded. Soto probably will not be traded. Well, now I can tell you that I'm hearing from people around baseball that the Nats, people have told people Soto will not be traded. That's what they're saying, so don't hold me to it, but I know that is what they're saying. You know what? We know the Nats are for sale, and I think you mentioned a caveat on the show last week or the week before that... You know, potentially there could be an owner who would want a clean slate and want his own team. I have heard that there are many bidders. They're going to do very well. They are going to sell the team. And every bidder to a man to this point says they want Soto on the team. Could have gone the other way. I understand. I think your point was a valid one at the time. But my understanding is they have told people Soto is staying. So the best player who potentially could be traded, who we've speculated on, will stay in Washington barring some bizarre thing happening. I always give it that little caveat there, but Soto staying.
2: So that was John Heyman. And actually that was from his podcast out in New York, right, Darius? Yeah, yeah. That was on the show with Joel Sherman and for the New York Post. Okay, cool. So where should we go with this? I guess is the the question, Danny. Let's start here. Soto is not getting traded this year. And you and I have Talked about this on Grant and Danny. We talked about it when it was in the the big news cycle spin because of the Buster Olney piece where one rival executive said the Nats should be fielding calls on Juan Soto. We talked about the idea that at some point there is probably going to have to be a conversation about trading Juan Soto. You're unlikely to re-sign him because he's advised by Boris. He's going to go to the market. He's going to get record money. And if you can't re-sign this guy ahead of the market, then it is only... Prudent and practical, and it makes sense that you would trade him. But with two-plus years left on his deal, there's no reason to do that now. They're not going to trade Juan Soto this year. So that part of it, to me, is not newsy. I know John Heyman is a newsbreaker a reporter, but for him to say Juan Soto's not going to be traded, to me, that's a nothing burger. Of course he's not going to be traded. Who could they trade him to? What package of players could they even get back? That would make any sense. There's no precedent for trading a guy of his caliber this far from free agency. Because try to find a trade partner who would be willing to give up what it would take, which is like four or five of your top prospects. No one's going to do that.
1: You'd have to involve multiple teams. You'd have to have just the a high wire act. It would be a carnival ride to try to figure out who, who could possibly make that kind of a deal. So I'm with you in the sense that a rival executive, which kind of spawned the Buster Only story here from a, you know, a few weeks ago, Nobody did anything wrong there. I know some people, you know, roll their eyes and say it's just clickbait. Well, this rival executive told them that. That's something that's on the minds of a lot of fan bases, a lot of other executives. They're salivating watching the Nationals lose three out of every four early on in the season, and basically saying, "Hey, this, you know, we know he may not be able to be there for a couple of years. Our window is right now. Let's start talking about these sorts of things." Where the rubber's going to meet the road, there's going to be an intersection where. The price comes down enough, because the amount of time left on the Superstars contract, to point of no return for the Nationals, knowing that they won't be able to resign him, and you still got to get the most that you can possibly get, et cetera. And then that's where you have to make that kind of really, really difficult, challenging decision. What, what I've said all along is, my first choice, my second choice, my top 77 choices are all... Juan Soto plays in Washington, D.C. forever. I take my kids to Nationals games and they know they're going to see Juan Soto.
2: 15 years, 500 million it to them. Uh, that's my first, second, third, fourth, and 14th choice.
1: Realistically, I b- happen to believe that because he's rep by Scott Boris, any offer will be met with a thank you. That's now the starting point for anybody
2: else that wants in, in on the bidding, right? Come free agency, come multiple years from now. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll like In other words, you make him the offer today, no matter what it is, you're saying, it doesn't matter because he just pockets that and then he tells other teams, this is what we have right now.
1: Yeah, this, this is just the beginning. And knowing that in a, in a year when they come knocking on your door, it's not going to go down. The Boris playbook is basically, you give him an offer and he says, thank you very much, and then you don't hear from him. And then you panic and you up your offer. Because he doesn't tell you that other teams are offering. He just stays silent. He plays that patient game. He's unbelievable at it. And he gets more and more and more and more money from his clients, right? Or for his clients. So, to me, the Nationals are kind of in this... Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Kind of a situation where obviously your fan base is going to be bitterly disappointed if you can't retain Juan Soto because because of what happened with the backdrops of Rendon and Harper and Turner and all the others who wasn't that have a gone Boris away. guy,
2: which is why right. when the team goes, hey, listen, it's tough. You know, Scott Boris. You know, he he likes to go to the market. Okay, that explains Harper. Okay, that explains Rendon. Okay, that explains Soto. But you have had a chance with a non-Boris guy and you screwed that up too. So it's hard for me then to say it's all about Boris right? because you could have paid Trey Turner two years before it was too late and you wouldn't have had to trade him last year. And he would just be midway through a massive contract or, or, you know, 40 percent through a huge contract right now as he gets closer to 30 years old. That's what they should have done. But. They never start those negotiations early enough because they don't want to pay more than they have to sooner in these contracts, Mm -hmm. which is how you get the discount on the back end and how you get these non-Boris guys, at least, under contract.
1: Indeed. So now that all the water's under the bridge, the fan base is where it's at after the 2019 joyride. Now you've been punched in the gut with whether it's pandemic, uh, among the worst in history, winning percentages of year of, of teams following a World Series championship, ninety-nine percent of the teams that win a World Series don't finish under five hundred again for the next several seasons. The Nationals are gonna have their third straight year in all likelihood, well under five hundred. That you know, circumstances changed. They have the sell-off last year, but they were gonna finish under five hundred last year. So The backdrop is we're going to be really disappointed if you can't keep him, but you may not be able to. It may may be out of your control this time, right? It may be that you could offer him the greatest offer that's ever been offered, and they say, thank you so much. We can't wait to go to the bidding because that's our goal. It takes two to tango. The the part for them that I think is just so impossibly challenging, and I think it's of their own creation, talking about the Nationals and ownership and and where they are, is – They've now got themselves in this really difficult challenging box where I don't know that there's a quote unquote good solution. It's the, the is well, all the, the time is, is, is Argo. Pay him. but I, but, but, you, but I'm coming into this with the idea that if you offer him something he'll just say thanks. So
2: here's where I would disagree with that. I think for the most part, you're right in that when they offered him the 350 million, mm-hmm. which has been reported by thanks for Lugo or somebody else, that's what they did. there is a contract I believe you could offer him now that he would accept. Again, he's two full years away Mm -hmm. from free agency after the season ends, and you're seeing him struggle on a bad team right now where he's hitting 230-plus. If you offered him today, they won't, so we're wasting our breath and it's nonsensical to talk about, especially before they sell the team. But if you offered him 15 years and $500 1,000% Scott Boris would accept that offer, 1,000%. There's no way you wouldn't. You look at what Tatis got. It blows that out of the water. You, you, he could get hurt tomorrow and never play again. You know, he he could get hurt tomorrow, his shoulder or something, or break a handmade bone and lose power that never comes back or something. So to shatter every record with like 500 million, not even a debate. Like he'd accept that. So the question is, where do you walk that line back to where it's a point of no return where he has to accept it? Could you do that for four thirty, for four forty, for four seventy? I don't know, but I know if you went to him right now and said, "Here's fifteen and 500 that deal's done. They just would never, in a million years, do that. Having said that, I want to talk about the ownership part of this because that was the other part of the Heyman comment. Yeah, that's we just the, heard that's the
1: central part to me.
2: So he basically said that to a man or a woman. We don't know who the owner that they're talking to about selling is they all want Soto on the team. Let's just take him at his word and say that he's right. He's got a decent enough batting average, get some stuff right, get some stuff wrong, but let's say they all want Soto. What do you make out of that? Like, what do you take from that? To me, they're worth the most money in a sale with Juan Soto as part of the team who could be the biggest star in baseball in any given season when he's going right. Beyond that though, If you are a new owner, as as you heard Heyman refer to, I I guess it was Sherman who had had this point, like you, even let's say you don't want to pay Soto. You want that asset because I take over the team. He doesn't take the fair offer I offer him. I now flip him and rebuild my entire organization with two pitchers who throw ninety eight in someone's system and two starters in the infield and the outfield. Like to me, it's a no brainer that he's going to be on the team when they sell. But he said they're definitely selling. They got a bunch of bidders going to do really well. Like that was the newsy thing to me there.
1: Yeah, but so then as as it applies to Soto, is that a under the current contract we'll have this we'll have this sale them within the next two years and he's on the roster? Or is this, we want him signed, sealed, and delivered. When we take over the team, we know our asset is Juan
2: Soto for well, 10 years, 12 years. But they're not selling in two years. They're trying to sell now. I know. I mean, so that that, to me... Like, this isn't that they're going to sell in 2025. Like, I, I think they want to sell tomorrow.
1: Well, it's a, yeah, and they want to hurry, but there's still a lot of things that have to happen between now and then. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is a new seller, of course, you're not going to trade Juan Soto in August before a sale gets done. But the difference is a long-term contract worth hundreds of millions of dollars, which is a diminishing asset—and again, I'm not saying Juan Soto is diminishing— the back half of that deal is not going to be the same value as when he's in his prime. Just like if I'm acquiring your uh, cereal factory, I know that right now it works, but you know, I have the I have a lease, I've got all these bits of equipment I'm going to have to pay for later to fix and all these other kind of things. So that's all sort of factored in. That's a depreciating cost. Some new owners will treat that as as an investment and say that's a bad idea. We want nothing on the books. Others will say, no, no, we need butts and seats for this ballpark. I mean, it's all you know, uh, six one half dozen the other. A new ownership group likely coming in will say, of course, right now this minute needs to be on the team. So he's not being traded this year. You're 100% right about that. But the long-term part of it, that's a variable that a different ownership group, it's eye behold to behold well, it So somebody might this. come in and say, oh, we got to have him. I don't care what the cost
2: is. Others might say, we're not paying that. Well, but, but so to be succinct, I think with what you're saying, the question is, is he worth more to the new owners not yet signed or signed?
1: That's the essential question, and right. that's going to depend on what kind of an what kind of owner it is. If they treat this as an investment, yeah, then no, they're not going to want it. It, it. They're
2: a coffee shop. Yeah, it, yeah, totally. Like the learners do. Where hey, you print on this paper. If we print on a different type of paper, we save fourteen cents. We're saving the fourteen you know? cents. But what I'm hoping for and praying for, what I really want, is that we get our own Steve Cohen. We get our Cohen. We get who's the Balmer guy that's out with the Clippers or whoever. Steve. Is that another Steve? Yeah. What's with all the Steves? The Steves are Steves are billionaires. They Look are. that up. I okay. have no idea. Every Steve? Are there Ma- any Steves that aren't billionaires? The
1: majority of Steves are billionaires. Okay. That's all my takeaway. Like
2: eighty nine. There's like 50? a
1: couple of Steves that are underachieving millionaires. Okay. Yeah.
2: But they, if you're a Steve, you're at least a millionaire. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that, I think that checks out. So, I want that. I want my own Cohen, my own Balmer. I want a guy that's coming in here. I'll, I'll use Bezos as my placeholder because it's just the easy name. He owns the Post. He's got. Didn't he buy a house here somewhere? Does he live here or does he just own... Like like he bought a neighborhood. He probably doesn't live anywhere, right? He probably has like 15 houses and 23 cities and... He also he I think he lives on Mars part of the time too now. Seriously, with a space company. Why wouldn't he? Uh so I want that guy or someone like him to buy this team and just to win bidding wars. Now, that's probably not that realistic, but the Mets have their thing now. They have Steve Cohen who wants to spend. And you got to deal with him tweeting and being annoying and, and saying things he shouldn't on social media when he gets mad that the team loses four games in a row. But my goal would be that whoever the new owner is, they have their press conference, and they say in that press conference, Juan Soto's going nowhere. And then they walk down the steps from the platform. They walk right over to Boris and Soto, who is at the press conference. They hand him a blank check, and they go fill it out. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Like, that is what I want. But I think to, to an owner, it's probably more valuable to have Soto on the cheap still not yet having signed an extension. Because then you get to decide, how much am I paying him? You get to right. decide if you can't pay him, you know what prospects you want back, or who, what organization, or what league or division you trade him to. So not only is he not being traded, but let's say they wanted to get a deal done, which they couldn't anyway right now. I don't think it would matter, because I think you're just in a holding pattern until the new owner makes that decision.
1: It's, there's so many complicating pieces to this. And again, th- this would be... I just wonder what the narrative would be, how different this world would be if they'd retain one of their guys. And I know they always, whenever we say that, they go, we paid Steven Strasburg. I, I guess I mean another one. If they paid somebody else at well, a certain point. They paid Ryan Zimmerman and Steven Strasburg I still all the time.
2: have like a, a radar antenna up weird thing over the shutdown that when they took care of him, I mean, this is 1000% me speculating. Put that and, tin
1: foil hat on right now. Yeah, you tin, tin foil it on.
2: hat, and it's like when they shut him down, there was like something like, "Hey, we're, we'll do an extension down the road or whatever." I'm gonna get. I feel dumb even saying it, but like they're, they're, he's the only guy. Now he's also a little bit different. He's kind of a weird cat. We're gonna talk about Strauss, by the way in one minute, who's rehabbing, but you know maybe he is. Like, one of these guys, mentally, who never wanted to have to go win over another clubhouse or meet new people or get to know teammates and coaches and a manager and learn a new route to a new ballpark. I mean, he is—I guarantee he drinks at the same bar by his house all the time. You know, there's three or four neighbors who see him on the same walk with his kids. Like, he's that kind of dude. So maybe it's just like that was more him than the Nats. But for it to only have been him and for him to be the guy that you shut down, which was pretty unprecedented— I got a little tinfoil hat thing going
1: there. It's not crazy to me. I mean, you know, again, remember, he signed a deal, then opted out after the World Series and signed another one. So, really, they've done this a couple different times yeah. <laughs> with Steven Strasberg. But, but just let me finish the point. I wonder what life would be like had they re signed Trey Turner. I think the conversation would be different. And I know Juan Soto's a different stratosphere than Trey Turner. Just Turner's a stud, don't get me wrong. All star, great to have. But there's something else about this guy that's being compared to Ted Williams. There's something else about this phenom that plays the way that he does and and, and with this joy and, and excitement and the excellence. And, you know, every time he's on a list, it's like, yeah, there's Jimmy Fox and Mickey Mantle and Juan Soto, you know, depending on your list. I wonder how differently people would feel. But it's just after last year, after you traded away the guys and it was the right thing to do at the time, knowing you weren't going to resign people. And it was time to you know try to rebuild the system that they've ransacked over the years to keep this competitive window open. I just wonder how differently people would feel. I I just know, just talking to this fan base, anything involving Juan Soto not being here is seen as, like, the bridge too far, despite the fact that they won a World Series just a couple seasons ago.
2: All right, let's talk Strauss. Rehab start number two, both in Fredericksburg. We talked about his rehab outing that I went to last Tuesday when we were uh, back and on the podcast. So, since then, he's pitched once. Also in Fred at their home ballpark right off 95. If you guys haven't gone, go check it out. It's beautiful. Pitched against the same Salem lineup. And boy, did he make those youngsters look like fools. Five nearly perfect innings. This was a flip of the script, Danny. This was the antithesis of what we saw. Mechanically, supposedly the reports were way better. Completely comfortable. Throwing strikes and pelting the zone. Five innings of hitless, one-walk, six-strikeout baseball. This is after he didn't get out of the third and allowed three hits and four walks and three runs. He punched out twice as many, six, had just the one walk, and didn't give up a single hit in his five innings. Now, I'm not throwing a party. I don't really care about the numbers. It's A-ball hitters, whatever. But after that first start, I thought... Oh, man, he's a long ways off. Mm -hmm. And I told you, I was talking to a bunch of the Nats brass that was there, and they said at least three, maybe four more starts in the minors. You watch that game and some of the highlights of him pulling the string with the change up and throwing the breaking ball, having more feel for that pitch. You can start to think about him in the big league rotation again pretty quickly. Uh, Five innings, throwing the way he did, pain-free it sounds like, coming out of that start, best we can tell, not complaining about discomfort or anything. That's a really good sign. It's
1: a great sign, and and listen, you're 100 percent right. Guys waving at that level, waving at his change up, or, or chasing a breaking ball out of the zone, or swinging at a high fastball doesn't tell you the full story. Would you know? Would Pete Alonso swing at that? Would I don't know. You know, name your big league stud. Pete Alonso uh,
2: probably would. He might have. I mean, he, he swings and misses. He's a lot.
1: up there to to hit nukes and take swings. Um, but you know what I mean. Like it would, Jeff McNeil staring at that. Right. Would would your your run of the mill big league hitter that owns would Freddie Freeman have swung? Who knows? It's tough to tell. But the way the stuff looked to me out of his hand, that's Steven Strasburg again. Right. The the first time it was mechanical. It was it was uncertainty. You ever, you know you remember in um, uh, Dark Knight Rises. When the Scarecrow sentences all the guys in Gotham to walk on the ice, death by exile. Love it. Those first couple of steps out there on the ice, that's what Strasburg looked like
2: to me. Love it sounds weird. I don't love that he did Not that. Not the death part. I love the film, and I remember the scene was pretty powerful. Yeah,
1: so he looked like a guy that, if I throw this ball with all my emphasis, is my arm going to snap off? Is my hip going to explode? Just looked like a guy that was trying to get through it, getting his work in, right? It was very mechanical. It wasn't very smooth. This go round, I mean, again, I'm looking at highlights here. So I'm watching the strikeout montage and a couple other moments there. It looked natural, fluid, letting his giant tree trunk legs work. And that was a, the big difference, right? When you're finishing your delivery, that's the extension. That's letting it go. And he's not 97 to 100 anymore. That's not who he is. But that 94 could certainly play up again with that breaking ball that we talked about that gets enough snap where it looks like a fastball dives down. And then that changeup that just disappears. That looked like his big league stuff.
2: So it's not always the whole story to just know a pitching line. And that's why I've been kind of waiting and seeing what Davey had to say and report about how Strauss was feeling. I say that because Joe Ross rehabbed on Tuesday in Harrisburg the same day Strasburg made his first start in Fredericksburg. And Ross's line was actually really good. And it looked the opposite of Strauss's to the point where on the pod last week we were saying, you know, based on how they threw, it seems like Ross could be closer. Mm -hmm. Well, Ross came out of that outing. Actually left a little bit early because he felt something, was in some pain. Well, we now know Joe Ross has been shut down, and he will have Tommy John surgery. His age 29 season over before it ever started. You have to imagine with TJ coming up and looming, the recovery would take him a year from now, which would mean we wouldn't see Joe Ross if he's back in the organization and resigns and is with the team next year until the end of the season. So, complete dagger for him going into... A huge offseason. Dagger for the organization as well because they were really looking forward to getting him back. Ross, by the way, people forget, was the best last season that he'd been since 2016. I mean, he did some really good things. He made 19 starts, 108 innings, and he struck out um, right around 110 batters. You know, more than one per frame. Uh, walk rate was down, and he had more Ks than hits. I mean, it was just at a you know kind of a corner-turning awesome season where it looked like He's ready to give you some middle-to-back-of-the-rotation performances. And he got hurt, and now it's TJ, and his season is over. Stinks. When you go back to the first time we saw him, Danny, 2015, when he was just dominant. I remember, I think it was his first start at Nats Park against the Cubs. I was there, and he just shoved on them. But that year, he was like 22, and he pitched 75 innings for a really good Nats team in 2015. And struck out almost a batter per, and he had a 223 average against. It felt like the, the ceiling, to quote the ancient philosopher Michael Jordan, was going to be the roof. You know, it, just, it felt like that dude was going to have a, a hell of a run here. Since then, he basically had the really good 16 for the majority of a season. And then, for three straight years, 17, 18, 19, after an injury, kind of lost his way. You know, barely pitched in 18. It's... Man, it's disappointing. I just feel for Joe. We know him. We got to know him real well years ago. Couldn't be a better guy. Works his butt off. And uh, I feel for you, man.
1: Yeah, really since 17, you touched on it. And remember, he opted out in
2: 2020. Forgot about that. The 2020 pandemic year, he didn't pitch at all.
1: It just feels like it's been forever since we've seen Joe Ross, a guy with all sorts of promise. And and I know this.
2: Last year, he was really good. How, How many
1: starts did he make last year?
2: I think it was close to 20 he pitched Did he last get that? year. Because I would have said yeah. in the teens. But remember, there you have he it. had like an eight-inning masterpiece. Like, he and Fetty got hot at the same time in the second yep. half of the year where they basically, you know, kind of carried the Nats in some way. He pitched, if you remember, in the World Series, he made a start against the Astros. Right, that spot Astros.
1: start. That was one of the, you know, listen, you obviously felt for the guy going up against Garrett Cole, but that was one of the coolest, spontaneous moments. Yeah. I remember in Nats Park uh, just being there and, you know, everybody's, thinking they're showing up to see Max Scherzer pitch. Find out it's not, and here comes Joe Ross thrust into duty. Hey, good luck. Good luck well, out there, Joe. And the place this, went nuts. Yeah,
2: Massive ovation when he walked out to the bullpen, because by then, word had gotten around Scherzer was not pitching. And they had to make a decision, and it was like, oh, my God. Was that game six or game five?
1: Would have been game five.
2: Oh, no, no, sorry. Was it four or five? Because three, four, and five were here. Yeah. I think it was five. So it was. they were 2-2 in the series. They won games one and two in Houston. They came back to D.C. Mm-hmm. They lose games three and four. You and I were at both. Yep. Game five, it's like, okay, you got Scherzer on the hill. You're not going to go down 3-2. Because D.C. sports fans, the assumption was you lose tonight. You lose all three at home. you got to go win two in Houston. Uh, that's it. Zero percent chance you win this World you Series. You woke the
1: sleeping giant.
2: And then you find out Scherzer can't go. He can barely put his clothes on. His back tightened up on him. Some weird thing that happened. And you go, holy crap, you got to be kidding me. And then it's Joe Ross. So people just got behind him. He walked out to that standing ovation. He started the game with Let's Go Joe Chance." It really was cool. And he pitched fine. I mean, he wasn't great or anything, but he was competitive in that game. He wasn't the reason why they lost. Obviously, they did lose. They were down 3-2. They lost all three of the World Series games here. And what happened? They went to Houston and won both.
1: That's right. Thank you very much. Uh, I still think about Juan Soto carrying his bat to first base in response to Alec Bregman doing that as well. Chaos,
2: Um, man. The Davey argument. The Rendon Homer right after.
1: By the way, I still haven't seen that call against that went against Trey Turner called at any other point in time in the big leagues, in college Did ball. he get
2: called on Trey Turner in the regular season like the it actually, following It actually season? might have. So
1: there, there went my hyperbole. But you get my point. <laughs> it's insane that they called it there. He's the only like, person insane. I've ever
2: seen it called against twice.
1: It's insane. Anyway, but to Joe Ross specifically, man, it, it's it's now, you know, at 24, at 25, you go, okay, he'll rebound, he'll be back, he's still got a long career. You know, the words of Owen Wilson from, from Wedding Crashers, we're not that young anymore. I mean, that, that's what this feels like, man. I I don't want to say that he's done. That's not what I'm saying. But it's like this is now how many years of we're not getting the Joe Ross experience that we thought. He's coming back from something. He's working back from this. So he's sort of fast forward. You know, are we talking at the end of 2022 he's making a couple rehab starts and maybe makes it back to the major leagues, God willing. It's like derailed, man. I, I feel for the guy. Great dude. Uh, Joe Ross for reference in 2021 went five and nine he did pitch 19 starts 108 innings for Joe Ross I don't know why I'm surprised it's that many maybe that maybe that's my memory hole that's on me
2: that's basically two-thirds of a season yeah something like that but it was i mean it was pretty solid like his strikeout rate was over nine per nine just like 9.1 his walk rate was low like that's really legitimate middle of the rotation type stuff and it makes it that much more painful that he didn't stay healthy end of last year and that this has happened since
1: well he started the last game of 2019 I believe against Cleveland when Cleveland was actually fighting for a playoff spot and the Nats just swept them because they swept everybody went to the playoffs and kept sweeping people and went to the World Series but That's the best he looked. I remember he beat Mike Clevenger in that game. I took my kids or a couple different guys to the game. His changeup was good that day, and that was always kind of this thing he was flirting with in terms of his touch and feel. And, you know, I talked to him after the game, and he was upbeat and excited. And It was one of those, like, how cool is this? We're all doing—everyone does great right now with this team. We're all pulling the rope in the same direction. I just remember, you know, how happy he was and how in a hurry he was to get out of there because he probably had a date because he's very handsome.
2: Mike Clevenger uh, has really annoying hair. Yeah, and a funky delivery. Yes.
1: What what bothers you more, the hair or the delivery?
2: Definitely the hair. I'll, any delivery you got, I'll take. Tim Lincecum picking up the dollar. Uh, you, you're limmy and like your arms are all over the place, like Chris Sale. I don't really care.
1: Clevenger's knee was above his head.
2: Do you know what Clevenger's doing with his hair now? He no. like braids it into pigtails. I don't. I'm not okay and, with that. And each one is going over one of his other shoulders. That's not my favorite. I don't know if that made sense. So he he basically braids his hair. And then he has each braid over his shoulders, like onto his chest. Basically, it is wacky with that what he's doing. But you know me, I just please cut your hair and have like a buzz cut or something uh, when you're pitching. Yes, there it is. Look at this picture. That's what he does now. Yeah, that's not great. I, what is that?
1: I respect his stuff. He's a big league pitcher. I would just I would do a prank where I just had scissors and <laughs> like, "Wah, That's such a funny prank we did. We cut the pigtails off. Like
2: those braid pigtails. I, I don't understand what that is. No longer in Cleveland, obviously. He's been in uh, San Diego after being moved. San Diego wins. By the uh, Padres to the Guardians, or, or vice versa. But the Guardians to the Padres. All right, I digress. Uh, so Ross, Tommy John surgery, out for the year. This follows Carter Kibu, who had Tommy John surgery. Yeah, bummer for, for him, too. Uh, but, you know, at least Ross, a couple of different times you've seen when healthy, legit, can do it. Key boom! It has never happened. This is a first-round pick, big-time prospect, ultra disappointing. Hasn't been able to string together quality abs, drive the baseball, slug at all, hit for any kind of power at the major league level or even the upper minors. Really, super frustrating. Because I think about this all the time. I don't want to pin the last couple of years like on just a couple of guys, but imagine how different this organization would be. If Victor Robles and Carter Keyboom became what they were supposed to, I think about that a lot. If Robles was an all-star caliber center fielder, just an awesome player who you're kind of a franchise building block, you build everything around. And Keyboom was a good, solid third baseman, say like a Kyle Seeger type dude, right? Who hits like 22 homers and bats 278 every year or something. I don't think the fire sale happened. I don't think last year is this abject disaster in the second half. I don't think they stink now. They would have actually tried to get better this offseason. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to put anything on Keeboom. My point is just... Because this happens. Hitting right. on important guys is important. I, I guess that's not groundbreaking. But no, it, your your top prospects can't fizzle out. Your top prospects like Robles, like Keeboom, especially when you make so many moves to bring in veterans and all it. that, you... It's it's a quality over quantity thing for them, and so you you need those guys to develop into something. And when it didn't happen, it set them back massively.
1: It's it's such an astute point, Grant, because it's not necessarily you know you've used there's two different way, two different ways to use your prospects. It's to replenish your major league roster, both with them being called up and being players and consistent for you, and also as trade fodder. Hayes, Lou Got you people that helped you win a World Series, and and you can name all the other prospects that 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 came over, right, or that that were shipped out to to generate guys that were contributors for a team that won you know ninety some games on average per year over the course of a decade. The guys that the, they do say we're holding on to, and we're counting on you to be the next blank when they don't hit in such a major way, that kills you. It really does because. If Keeboom had been part of some package, we never would have noticed, never would have cared. We'd, we'd go, hey, what's he up to now? Hitting 200 for Kansas City or something like that, he right? He
2: would be, uh, you know, any uh, Nick Pavetta. Just right. a name that they moved at some point.
1: Just another guy. But they said, you're, we're counting on you, young man, so you'll graduate. Once we've lost Anthony Rendon, you're the third baseman every day. You hit 200. You know what I mean? It's one of those things that because of where they put their chips, losing that bet hurts for them more than it would for a team that's just graduating
2: prospects every week. Let's talk about the trade deadline, which we're still a couple months away from, obviously, as we turn the calendar into June. But I noticed that you've got a couple of pieces here starting to heat up that might matter come the deadline. As we embark on Tuesday Baseball, you and I are recording this right before first pitch against the Mets. You know Cesar Hernandez, who has hit safely for the better part of the last week, one of the league leaders in hits at this point? 295 average now the OPS isn't great but it is 712 which is above league average he's getting on base about 35 percent of the time almost he's playing a decent second base he's actually become a decent little trade chip, I think. For the Nationals. They signed him this offseason to a one-year deal for four million dollars. So someone will basically take on for the better part of the, the last couple months, you know, a little over a million bucks on a one-year contract as a rental. You could probably get a decent minor leaguer for him. I would add Cesar Hernandez to we've talked about Josh Bell, switch hitter, power, first base, DH. Nelson Cruz starting to trend up, leading the team in runs batted in. As it gets hotter, hopefully hits more home runs. As the top guys you might be able to get a return for at the deadline, one other name I'd throw in there is Tanner Rainey. Rainey's off to a really strong start. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of Nats fans would prefer to keep him because you've got some control. But I, I view relief pitching as volatile year-to-year, hard to predict. So does Mike Rizzo, by the way. Yeah, it seems like he does as well. And on top of that, like there's nothing that you are more desperate for than reliable, good, late-inning pitching when you're rebuilding. So if you could get something decent and a team's desperate for a power arm and they'll give you... I don't know, a potential starter of the future and like a double A arm for Tanner Rainey or something. If he's lights out until the deadline, do that. But those are the names I came up with. What do you think of that? Hernandez, Bell, Cruz and Rainey as right now. I don't think any of them net you anything huge. You might even have to do a Scherzer Turner thing where you like package together Cesar Hernandez and Josh Bell to even get like a top two or three prospect in anybody's system. But I think there's a return to be had for those three guys, and maybe Rainey if you include him.
1: I'd add a couple names, potentially. I think Victor Rano's throwing the ball pretty well. Medium leverage situations. Again, no one's talking about a, uh, a top two or three prospect coming back, but maybe as part of a package. Maybe we're talking about shipping a couple people. The other name I would add, Hernandez and Hernandez. Not brothers, no relation. Yadiel Hernandez. You're telling me a first division club wouldn't want a good lefty bat off the bench, a guy that you could put in left field in certain matchups, who's not going to you know, kill you defensively? Good bat to ball. He's hitting the ball with authority. Every time he's been anywhere, he's hit. He's in his mid-30s. That's not a great rebuilding chip for somebody. I love the way he swings the bat. I love his story. I love the way he's competed. Now let him fetch you something.
2: All right, speaking of fetching you something, I actually don't have a good transition. I was going to say, let's fetch a new topic. Uh, I was playing fetch with my neighbor's dog. Trying to make fetch happen. There you go. Here we go. Ready? Speaking of fetching something. Okay. I was playing fetch with my neighbor's dog yesterday around the grill on Memorial Day. Uh Uh-huh. It's a true story. Another thing I was doing yesterday was prepping to talk about the studs and duds of the week. Let's do that now.